Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 232, The Second Crusade, part 2. Previously on the History of Byzantium, the crusader city of Edessa was captured by a Muslim warlord, sending shockwaves through Western Europe. The Pope called for a new crusade and snagged two major recruits, King Louis VII of France and the German Emperor Conrad. Both men led significant armies across the continent to Constantinople, determined to retrace the steps of the First Crusade. The Byzantines were not happy to see them. Manuel Komnenos used all his energy to get both armies across to Anatolia as quickly as possible. Conrad's Germans would not wait for the French, though, and set off from Nicaea as soon as they could. It was a huge mistake. Back in 1097, the first crusaders had marched out from Nicaea and agreed to rendezvous at Dorylaeum. This was a wide open plain fed by rivers where an army could gather. To stop them reaching it, the Turks ambushed the Latins as soon as they emerged onto the plateau. Only the gigantic size of the western army saved them from annihilation. The Turks had learned from that encounter when more Latin armies crossed the plateau in 1101, they were ready for them. Instead of engaging in a pitched battle, the nomads harried the pilgrims relentlessly until they lost cohesion and then slaughtered them. By refusing Byzantine advice and aid, Conrad was marching into a trap. The German emperor was not totally ignorant of the danger that lay ahead, so he divided his forces in two. He would lead the fighting men to Dorylaeum, but the many women and non-combatants who'd taken the cross would go via a different route. He put them under the command of his half-brother Otto, who would take them south through Byzantine territory, the route that Manuel had suggested. I've put up a map at thehistoryofbyzantium.com and on social media if you want to follow along. Still, even if we ignore the Turkic army waiting for him, Conrad's plan to cross Anatolia was inherently foolish. It was already mid-October when he set off. 
The First Crusade had struggled to find enough food in the middle of summer. Conrad would soon be facing winter conditions in an already barren landscape. He seems to have been misinformed about how quickly his army would be able to cross the plateau, and if he was banking on capturing Turkic cities along the way, well, that was a huge gamble. Ten days into his journey, Conrad began to realise his mistake. The supplies the army had carried from Nicaea were already running out, and the Turks were attacking his scouts. The Germans had no experience of fighting nomads. Foot soldiers out foraging would be picked off one by one, while foolish cavalrymen would chase the Turks for miles before realising their mounts were exhausted and they were lost. The nomads would track them down a few minutes later and wipe them out. One day, when the heavy cavalry were absent, the Turks attacked the German camp and caused chaos and slaughter. It was only three days' march beyond Dorylaeum when the German nobles called for a council and advised Conrad to retreat. The emperor agreed, despite the shame he felt, and may not have realised that his troubles had only just begun. Turning the army around was an invitation for the Turks to increase their attacks. The Sultan of Iconium, Masud, had masterminded this whole campaign, and he now encouraged his men to be relentless. Let's make sure the Latins never want to come here again. It was a broken and dispirited army that arrived back at Nicaea in early November. King Louis and the French were shocked at the state of the Germans. Conrad had taken several arrows to the body, and his armour had not kept all of them from his skin. He'd lost between six and 8,000 men from a force of 20. Many simply packed up their gear and went home. Others returned to Constantinople, where Manuel's German wife paid for them to reach the Holy Land by sea. Conrad and the core of his army were determined to continue, though. Taking refuge at the centre of the French force, they steeled themselves to march onwards again. By the way, in a preview of what was to come, the second German army, with mostly non-combatants, did make it to Italia on the southern coast of Anatolia, but they suffered terribly on the journey. Though they avoided the Turks for long stretches, they found the rugged landscape difficult to navigate. October rains meant the streams and rivers which they had to cross were swift and swollen. Many died on the journey or were captured by the Turks once they left Roman territory to cross the plateau. Those that did make it to Italia then sailed for Jerusalem. Louis and Conrad now set off from Nicaea south towards Ephesus. The mood in the Crusader camp had completely changed though. The hobbling of the Germans had shattered the illusion built up by papal preachers of a glorious march to Edessa. The autumn weather also turned on the Latins, making the ground boggy and supplies hard to find. This is where the Latin historians begin to vent their anger at the Byzantines, which you can understand from their perspective. They were marching through supposedly friendly territory, and yet the gates of every town were shut to them. The local Byzantines were charging high prices for small amounts of food and didn't seem well disposed towards their fellow Christians. I struggle to understand the Latin planning 
for this part of the campaign. Why were they marching across Anatolia in winter? I assume they decided to do this because they wanted to be in Edessa in spring to begin campaigning, but they seem to have ignored both the practical reality of crossing Anatolia and the lessons of history. For men who were retracing the steps of their ancestors, they seem to have skipped those chapters of the First Crusade where everyone's horses died and people were starving for months on end. And again, that was in summer. What really infuriated the Latins, though, was that the Turks kept attacking them even though they were deep in supposedly Byzantine lands. Not only did they blame Manuel for making a truce with the Turks, but they suspected that the local Romans were tipping the nomads off as to their whereabouts. This was where the realities of life on the ground were just too complex for the Crusaders' black-and-white mindset. Although the Byzantines controlled the west coast of Anatolia, the Turks could easily cross into it. There was no hard border between the two. Inevitably, then, the Romans who lived there tried to develop friendly relations with the local nomads, offering to trade goods with them, as all settled peoples who live near steppe lands have to. The Latins suspected that the local Romans were in cahoots with the Turks, which may have had some truth in it, but was more a reflection of the need to survive rather than betrayal. By Christmas, the army was able to rest in the plains around Ephesus, but heavy rain and then snow fell as the army attempted a damp celebration. Worried about flooding, King Louis pushed his army forward, but Conrad decided to stay behind. His wounds hadn't fully healed, and many in his camp were still sick and demoralised. Wisely, he decided to spend the winter where he was, before attempting to complete his pilgrimage. The French now pushed east along the Meander Valley. This was the route the Byzantines regularly used, a relatively flat plain with a river at its centre that you could use to get to the plateau. Unfortunately, this was such a predictable route that Massoud's men had already descended into the valley from the other end. As the French moved forward, they found Turks waiting for them everywhere. Some held the mountain paths out of the valley. Others stood on the other bank of the river. Still more would appear in front of the army, pepper them with arrows and retreat. Louis responded by reorganising his forces. He put his well-armed knights at the front, rear and sides of his force to act as a human shield against the nomads' arrows. Then he made sure everyone marched in a slow, disciplined fashion up the valley. Irritated by the lack of response their attacks now aroused, some Turks decided to ride right up to the enemy. This allowed the Franks to counterattack. The cavalrymen charged the nomads, sending some spiralling off their horses and causing the rest to flee. The Latin cavalry launched themselves up the mountain paths and broke the nerve of the nomads waiting at the top of the hill. The Turks fled, and for a short while, the Crusaders had won themselves some respite. Around the 3rd of January, the army reached the Byzantine city of Laodicea. In theory, the local commander was meant to welcome them and help them on their way to Atalia. But apparently he was nowhere to be seen, and the local inhabitants had fled, taking their supplies with them. 
The Latins had another two weeks' journey ahead of them, but without any supplies to carry, they knew they would struggle to survive. Foraging ever further from camp in winter was certain to leave them wide open to attack and starvation. Scouts soon found the decaying bodies of the Germans who'd come this way a month or so before. A bad omen, if ever there was one. A few days later, the French came across Mount Cadmus, which offered one route out of the Meander Valley. They decided to climb it, presumably because this path would be equally difficult for the Turks to ascend. Louis was informed that he would need to spend a day marching to the summit, camp there, and then descend the next day. And this is where tragedy struck. Despite their earlier discipline, things now fell apart. The vanguard found the climb much easier than they'd anticipated, so they went beyond the summit and pitched their camp on the other side of the mountain, because there was a better campsite on that side. But that meant they could no longer see the rest of the army and did not adequately communicate this decision to their comrades. Coming up next in the centre of the army were the non-combatants and the baggage train. Seeing the path ahead was clear, those in the middle took their sweet time getting up the hill. With their orders to camp at the summit, which didn't seem that far away, there seemed no rush. Waiting for them to get clear were the rearguard, who, seeing the slow progress ahead of them, were still in their camp. This meant that temporarily the most vulnerable part of the army, the baggage train, were completely alone on the side of a hill. Something not lost on the Sultan scouts, who were tracking the Crusaders' every move. Masoud's men quickly raced along the mountainside and launched an attack on the Crusaders' supplies. Spread out over six miles of mountainside, those shepherding the pack animals began to panic as they saw the Turks approach. Attempting to rush slow-moving animals up a winding mountain path is never a good idea, and as the nomads got closer, horses and carts began to topple down the mountainside. The Turks were merciless, killing everyone they came across, sometimes just shoving them off the path to their doom. When King Louis realised what was happening, he rushed to the scene and threw himself into the fighting. He was quickly overwhelmed and fell onto an abutting rock. His armour protected him from serious harm, but he was left merely to fend for himself while the Turks moved on past, not realising who this stranded crusader was. Louis's personal guard were largely cut down by the nomads as they made space for the remainder of the baggage train to struggle over the summit. The battle on Mount Cadmus was a disaster, and the French were now as chastened as Conrad's Germans had been. With twelve days to go to Italia, they had to tighten up their formations to survive. To Louis's eternal credit, he did not let his ego get in the way of what had to be done. The king turned to a group of outsiders for advice and allowed them to run the army for him. These were the Knights Templar, a military religious order founded to help protect pilgrims in the Holy Land. A hundred and thirty of them had come to Paris to accompany the king on crusade. During the journey they had stood out for their hardened discipline and ability to stand up to Turkic attack. So Louis ordered his army to place themselves under temporary Templar authority. 
swearing to obey their new Templar officers who would organise the next leg of their journey. The Templars divided the remaining soldiers into groups of 50, each with a Templar commander. Strict discipline was enforced and instructions given on when and when not to chase the Turks. Even Louis was given orders by the Templars, though only in very polite tones. The new formation was instantly more successful. The army was able to ford two rivers with muddy banks while coming under fire from Turks, and then they defeated the nomads in battle when the Turks held higher ground. The Templars knew that the steppe riders would always retreat at the last moment if the Latins got too close, and by forcing the Crusaders to remain in steady, disciplined lines, the nomads' nerve eventually broke and they fled the field. The decision to devolve command to the Templars was an admission of failure by Louis, one that showed real weakness to his leading nobles, who mocked him for it in their letters home. And though it does indicate his considerable military inexperience, I think he deserves applause for his humility. The battered army arrived at Italia around the 20th of January, 1148, and were greeted by the local Byzantine commander. He insisted that the senior nobles reconfirm their oaths to Manuel before he would let them in, which must really have stuck in their craw. The Byzantines opened their markets to the Crusaders, who camped outside the city, but prices remained high in the middle of winter. The Turks also remained parked just beyond the horizon, preventing anyone from venturing very far from camp. Louis sat down with his nobles and discussed the situation. They could sail for Antioch, which would take three days, or they could march, which would take forty. Unfortunately, there weren't enough ships around to take everyone, so Louis suggested that the weakest amongst them sail, and the stronger stay with him and take the coast road. Louis's nobles refused. Fascinatingly, they blamed him for their predicament, suggesting that had they taken the road to Dorylaeum, they would have been better off. Their argument was that the first crusaders had fought the Turks immediately, enabling them to swiftly become a battle-hardened fighting force and using the plunder they took from their victories to fund the rest of their trip. While that reading of history has some logic to it, it rather ignores the mauling that Conrad's forces had already received. Surely, had Louis taken the same route, they'd all be dead now. But denial is a powerful thing, and the French were deeply resentful of the fact that marching through Byzantine lands had emptied their pockets and left them no chance of glory. The army was forced to wait for several weeks until the weather cleared and suitable ships could be found. Louis then sailed for Antioch with his senior men. He did all he could for those left behind. He gave them most of the money he had left and ordered able commanders to lead them along the coast. But inevitably, the Turks tracked them down and routed them. A few months earlier, Manuel sent ships to Ephesus to pick up Conrad and his contingent. No way was the German emperor going to convalesce in damp Ephesus when he could come and sit by a roaring fire in Constantinople. Conrad agreed and sailed with his forces, 
for the warm embrace of the Byzantine court. Manuel's personal physician tended to Conrad's wounds, and once he felt better, he was given the same royal hospitality that Louis had enjoyed a few months earlier. Manuel and Conrad got on well. They had plenty in common. After all, their wives were sisters. The Romans did all they could to make it a convivial stay. The irritation the Germans felt towards the Byzantines was hard to sustain at this point. Conrad agreed to another dynastic marriage between his brother and Manuel's niece before resuming his journey to the east. The Romans outfitted his entire force with new weapons and clothes and horses and paid for ships to take them to Acre. So in the end, both Louis and Conrad did make it to the Holy Land with a few thousand men each by their sides. They never did reach Edessa, though. Our old friend Jocelyn managed to sneak back into the city after Zengi was murdered. The emir's son, though, took charge of the situation and again put Edessa under siege. This time, when the Muslims broke through the gates, they didn't just target the Latins. Most of the Christian population of Edessa was killed or enslaved. The city became a shadow of its former self, and a useless target for the Crusaders to pursue. Instead, Conrad and Louis would set their sights on Damascus. If they'd captured that city, it would have somewhat justified their expedition, but the siege failed, and actually united more of Muslim Syria under the banner of Zengi's family. On his way home, Conrad stopped off at Thessaloniki and Manuel travelled out to meet him. The two monarchs confirmed their anti-Norman alliance. As I mentioned last time, during the progress of the Second Crusade, the Normans had invaded Byzantium and raided the Greek mainland. The Romans were planning on exacting serious retribution for this act. In fact, Manuel wanted a full-scale invasion of southern Italy. He needed to make sure that Conrad would be happy for him to do this, given that the Germans claimed all of Italy as part of their empire. Conrad gave his assent, and the two emperors said their final farewells. The Second Crusade was a disaster of epic proportions. Not only did the Crusaders fail to restore Edessa to Utremir, but they managed to strengthen Muslim resistance against their brethren. The aura surrounding Frankish arms was further eroded, as was the relationship between Byzantium and the West. Despite Conrad's friendship with Manuel, the rank and file returned home bitter at their experience of the Eastern Roman state. The French felt even more venomous. Louis's personal chaplain, Odo of Douy, wrote the most anti-Byzantine history of a crusade yet. In it, he made a convincing case that Manuel wanted the Latins to fail and actively informed Massoud of their movements. Of course, he didn't, but Odo's writing was persuasive. There were many in Byzantium who also felt that Manuel could have handled things better. Our historian Coniates echoes some of Odo's complaints, suggesting that the emperor should have done more to help the Latins when they were in Anatolia. While modern historians suspect that Anna Komnini's account of the First Crusade was in some sense a response to the failure of the Second, 
framing the successes of the first as an even greater victory for Alexius. Could Manuel have done more? Possibly. It sounds like he did offer advice and supplies at every opportunity, but several times was rebuffed. When Louis set off from Ephesus, Manuel was still sending letters advising him to wait for spring. The Latins would have been more likely to listen if Manuel had sent troops to guide them across the plateau, but given the Normans had just invaded, and remembering what Bohemond had done when given aid to capture Byzantine cities, it's understandable why he didn't. Still, one can't escape the feeling that part of Manuel was happy to see the crusade fail. It certainly benefited him in the short term. After all, no relief came Antioch's way, keeping the Syrian city dependent on Byzantine aid. It's also hard to ignore our hindsight. We know that more crusades will be coming, so it's hard to praise Manuel's standoffish approach. In future, more crusaders will travel by sea, refusing to even offer help against the Turks, meaning they won't be coming to Constantinople to swear oaths of loyalty, and will have far clearer consciences when they seize pieces of Byzantium to help them in their mission. The next time we're all together, we'll return to the Norman invasion of Greece and follow the Byzantine response to that sneak attack. But to say thank you to all you Patreon subscribers, the next episode will be The Second Crusade, Part 3. This will be a little bonus episode for you hardcore Crusader fans. I'll tell you what Odo of Doi says about the Byzantines during his journey. We'll discuss the plot to capture Constantinople and the scandalous rumours about what went on between Prince Raymond of Antioch and Louis's wife. I'll also take you briefly through the failed siege of Damascus to bring the whole Second Crusade to a final conclusion. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 